You are now listening to the Bishop Stortford Vineyard Church Sermon of the Week. As we begin Lent this year and move towards Easter, I'd like to start off a series of reflections around um, the issue of Psalm 78 and some of the uh, imagery and the themes and how it occurs in various different parts of Scripture and how that reinforces each other. But I need to lay a foundation for that in this first talk. But let me begin with a reading from James chapter 1. My lectionary readings this morning were James 1, Psalm 94, um, John 14 and Mark 8. And it was fascinating because they were all around the issue of the Word of God, our hard hearts, how we listen, how we hear, whether we actually hear and whether we do it. How we enter into, in a way, what God has for us, his revelation for us. So here, James 1, verse 22 onwards. Don't fool yourself. This is the message. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you are anything but. Letting the word of God go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance at a mirror walk away and two minutes later have no idea who they are or what they look like. But whoever catches a glimpse of the revealed counsel of God, the free life, even out the corner of his eye and sticks with it, is not distracted, is no scatterbrain, but a man or woman of action. That person will find delight and affirmation in that action. Now, every day... In terms of most lectionary readings, they put besides each other a range of different scriptures. And the challenge is always to read them and to see how they interact with each other. Now, you'll see what I mean by raising this issue a bit later when we talk about Oregon and the key that he has in terms of how we interpret and how we enter into the story of God. But every day there is a psalm. Every day there is a gospel reading. And one of the most interesting things I think about the Psalms is that in the New Testament, I think as far as I can make out, Jesus references the Psalms on at least 11 occasions. There are in the New Testament apparently about 77 times when the Psalms are referenced. And probably around about three or 400 allusions to what we find in the Psalter in various different ways within the New Testament letters and Gospels, which is quite significant, I think. And I think part of that is um, the place that the Psalms have had, not only in the history and life of Israel, but in the, in the church as well. They form a kind of bedrock of our praise, our worship, our understanding of God and of ourselves and each other. And I think one of the things that is important with the Psalms is, I think we need to ask, how do we find our way into this text, this particular passage that we're looking at, whichever one it happens to be? And I think part of that, and here's um, a very simple and practical thing, part of that is the dailiness of our reading and our praying. So, by reading daily the scriptures and praying the Psalms on a regular basis, as one commentator says, it rubs off 
it rubs away the edges of my ignorance. It slowly erodes the hardness of my heart. Love that quote. In a sense, repetition opens doors. It opens the door of our heart. And one of the ways that it does this, and I think I appreciate this more fully the older I get, is that by praying the Psalms, it brings us up against other parts of the Bible, especially the New Testament and Gospels. The images and the word pictures that we encounter in the Psalms, um, they resonate in terms of the main themes of Jesus' message of salvation and in the Gospels. And I think it's important to say that it, when we do this, it, se it seems like we're just going through the motions sometimes when we read or when we pray through the Psalms. But it's, it's not only this thing that we do. As we do it on a regular basis, somehow it does something to us. So as we work in this way, the Psalms are working in us. And God works in us through this as it washes over us. And so our hearts, in, as another commentator said, somehow when we read in a regular fashion like this, the furniture in our mind and in our heart is being moved around, uh, sometimes even replaced. And our imagination is reshaped into the image of Christ. Well, that's a good thing. And so what you have with the Psalms is what someone called a, a climate of biblical prayer. Now, climate isn't just one single event. It's not a rainbow or a thunderstorm. It's not good weather or bad weather. It's rather a term that characterizes the backdrop of all these other individual events, the rain, the sunshine, all these play out in, 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 a, in an environment which each of them has a specific character. And the Psalms are like that. The Psalms form this climate of prayer, biblical prayer. And each Psalm is one of the aspects of that climate. And the whole of the whole uh, Psalter, the Psalms, form a kind of a content that holds in it both um, all that we need to know about God and of ourselves. And so from the earliest Christ Christian writings and understanding of the Psalms, it's seen as both a gateway into and a summing up, in a way, of all the other books in the Bible. And so truly in the Psalms, we encounter everything else in a kind of microcosm. Athanasius, who was a 4th century bishop in the church at Alexandria in Egypt, uh, wrote a commentary on the Psalms, and he wrote to a friend of his saying that the Psalms are like a garden. Uh, the, sorry, the Bible is like a garden, and each book in the garden has its own particular fruit. But he contrasts the Psalms where he says that the rest of the Bible is like that, but the Psalms, although they have their own character, they are part of the garden in terms of praise and worship, they also hold virtually this, um, as he says, at some point, the prayer, uh, prayer in the pr the prayer, the Psalms take us to all the places of God's activity. It touches all of our reality. And so, um, Thomas Aquinas, the 
13th century theologian, um, he said that the Psalms embrace all of theology. Luther, the reformer, says that the Psalms are what he called a little Bible. So all these 150 Psalms that we read on a regular basis, in a way, are a gateway into the rest of God's revelation. They articulate not only um, and put into words not only the messy complexity of how you and I experience God, but how we are in ourselves and with each other. And so Calvin was able to say that in the Psalms we see a mirror of our own soul. Athanasius, back to him again, he says, within the Psalter are represented and portrayed in all their variety the movements of the human soul. What am I saying? I'm trying to say that when we read the Psalms on a regular basis, we're confronted with God in terms of all his richness, but also we are invited to see ourselves and each other. And they guide us into all of that um, kind of experience. Now, in Lent, I want to look at Psalm 78, and I want to look at the character of, of various different things. But here is this huge collection of disparate, different kinds of poems and uh, songs and anthems of praise and lament, written by often anonymous authors over a period, a great period of time, held together, um, older, well, older than our own Christian literature, um, more than 2,000 years old, and of such variety that it's quite remarkable. And as we look at this and we see, and, and, and really what I'm trying to say is that when we come to the Psalms and we pray and read the Psalms on a regular basis, we are going to be um, enriched if we begin to link it with the various different other aspects of the Scripture, which is essentially what the the um, Athanasius and Luther and all those others are saying. In Acts chapter 8, there is a very interesting moment because Philip is uh, one of the first followers of Jesus and there's an encounter that takes place between Philip and this high-ranking Ethiopian um, palace official which touches on this point, because Philip has been off in a whirlwind of preaching in Samaria. Um, uh, he encounters this foreigner who's come to worship in Jerusalem and appears to be back, going back uh, home to Ethiopia and is engrossed in reading the scriptures. And as Philip draws next to him in Acts chapter 8, we have this little cameo, which is delightful. Um, He's reading what we would now call the Old Testament. He's reading from a scroll, and he's reading from Isaiah. And he's clearly reading out loud because Philip is close to him, but calls to him and says to him in um, verse 31 or 30, I can't remember now, do you understand what you are reading? Now, it's a, it's a question, I think, we should ask of ourselves when we look at these passages. So when I was reading my lectionary readings this morning, do I understand 
what I'm reading? What is actually being said? What is God telling me? What is a passage saying about who God is, what his revelation is, about who am I in this passage? And what about my family, my friends, my neighbors? The question is really as old as the Bible, do you understand? Do you know what you're talking about? Do you know what you're reading? This Ethiopian official replies in words that we might say for ourselves, how can I unless someone guides me? Now, we, let me just instantly say here, we do have the incredible gift of God's Spirit to lead us and direct us and guide our footsteps. But Philip springs to life, and from that moment he begins to give, um, he offers him some kind of explanation of what he's reading. He points to Jesus, and it clearly changes his life, and he's baptized in a pool of water and becomes a follower of Jesus very excitedly. Now, essentially that little cameo is what it's all about in terms of reading the Scripture is that when we read it, we need to be saying, how in this moment do I encounter Jesus? What is happening in this particular passage or these different passages that I'm reading together? And it requires for us to be willing to be affected by it, to be gripped by it, to be prepared, as we read from our passage in James, to respond to something, to be attentively listening, not just skipping through the words. Um, there's another passage that I just want to touch on briefly in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Beginning of Samuel, we have the story of in chapter 1 of Hannah and how she becomes pregnant and gives birth to, to Samuel and how he comes to be in the temple precinct. And it was in the, it was it was a story about the time of Israel before they became a nation when they were living in a loose association of tribes and the prophetic leaders of Israel played a significant role in their life. They worshipped God at this time, at this particular point, they were worshipping God at a shrine in a town called Shiloh. But the most important context of this story about the boy Samuel is that he appears to be deeply inside the um, tradition, the prophetic life, the ritual life, the temple life, the, um, the whole religious experience. And we'll come to that in a second. But he still hadn't been gripped by it. Let me explain. Samuel's mother had prayed to God for his conception and birth, promising that when she had this child, he would be given over to God from his first breath, essentially. And as a baby, he was dedicated to God. And his parents left him at the shrine or the place at Shiloh as soon as he was weaned. 1 Samuel 1.28 says, As long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. That's, that's how he starts. That's the beginning. This is a boy whose fundamental direction in life is orientated towards God in everything that he does. And we, we see some really touching things about his life there. Um, 
he continued to grow in favor with the Lord and with people. That's chap chapter 2, verse 28. He's mentored by Eli, the senior priest there. He's ministering daily before the Lord on behalf of God's people. And he's probably more in involved, engrossed in the whole worship than most of us have ever been in our life. But So when we come to chapter 3, it's quite interesting because here the Lord calls him personally. And it's really quite a, um, a jarring text to a certain sense because the initial tranquil scene is that the lamp had not yet gone out in the temple and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So there's this restful, peaceful, uninterrupted scene in the sanctuary. That's where he is. And then the Lord calls Samuel, Samuel, and he says, here I am. And he runs to Eli. And he says to Eli, here I am, you called me. But Eli then says, I didn't call you, go and lie down. So he goes to lie down, that's verse 4. Here's the interesting thing. I'm just I'm just reflecting. The, he he mistakes God's word and reacts to it in a different way. Here is a person who's lived his whole life in this thing, who has favor with God and with God's people, and is unable to discern the source or nature of the word addressed to him. His personal confrontation. Uh, what the commentators would say, he's not inside the event. He's not engaged yet with the word of God being spoken directly to him as an individual. He, he, he supposes that it's Eli who's calling him. And I suppose this is understandable. It's a reasonable mistake in a way. Um, it's the kind of mistake we often make. The word of God is spoken to us. God's word comes to us and we see it as for someone else, or we, we, we don't actually apprehend that it's directed for us to be engaged with and to become part of the story, the adventure that God has in that moment for you and for me. And so although God is present and revealing himself to Samuel, nothing happens. And this nothing happens three times. And just in case we are inclined to miss the point, it's only on the fourth attempt that Samuel is ready to hear, to read the situation correctly. What is interesting for me in this whole story is that in verse 7, when all of this has happened, it says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. It's a strange place in the text to say that because we've led to believe that he's the insider, he's the ultimate choir boy who's been part of the scene for the whole time and who's been growing in wisdom and stature with the Lord and with others. But it says the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. He did not yet know the Lord. And I think this is crucial information because it kind of, Jaws, it contrasts with what the story has been unfolding to us as we've gone on. Here's the insider 
who yet hasn't had this dynamic personal encounter and who has not yet been made or have come to be aware that he's actually part of the story. So, as we read this, for me anyway, I think what I'm trying to say with the looking at Philip with the Ethiopian official and with Samuel now and the word of God coming to him about the whole thing of how we read the Psalms is that not just Lent, but whenever we read the, the scriptures, that it's actually God speaking directly to you and I, inviting us to participate, to become insiders, to become part of the adventure of what is unfolding around us and in us and through us. And so we, like Samuel, like Philip and the Ethiopian, are called to not just be hearers or listeners, letting the word go in one ear and out the other, as the message puts it in James 1, but to act on what you hear, to invite the fact of God's presence and speaking to us to wash over us so that we don't just look at the mirror, which is the, is the word of God, the scripture, and go away and forget it, but that we see our own souls as Kelvin and Luther and Aquinas and Athanasius all say, and that we see ourselves as part, as part of what God is doing, as participant in the whole drama of the story of salvation, an invitation, if you like, to be shaped and changed in a, in a most dramatic way. So, I've run ahead of myself, as I sometimes do, and I've lost where I was now. But, essentially, um, oh yes, I know what I wanted to say. In, in the passage in 1 Samuel, where God speaks to him, and he says to, he says to the Lord, Samuel says to the Lord, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening where he comes to that place where there's a realization for him. And then in verse um, 10 um, and 11, uh, Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Then the Lord says to Samuel, I love this bit, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make both, will ma make both ears of anyone who hears it tingle. I love that. When did you last hear the word tingle used in a, in a sentence? But there's this sense of, there's, there's this expectancy, this energy, this vibrancy, this alertness, this um, almost hyper-awareness that both your ears will tingle because of what I'm about to do. And as we go through into this Lent period, I want to just challenge all of us that we don't get to the place where we're so used to reading and listening that it's like a mirror that we look at and we fall, we fall into the same trap that we skim over things and we've done our duty and we've been in the temple like Samuel. But we need to say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening and allow for God to speak to us in such a way that we understand who he is, who we are, what our role is in this great, exciting 
drama of salvation that he's given to us. And how we discern what's actually happening, that our ears begin to tingle. Because what Samuel suddenly realizes, I think, is that this story, this history of his people, is now his story. And it's my story, it's your story. Oregon, who was about 100 years before, Ale- uh, before Athanasius, also in Alexandria in Egypt, one, a third century Egyptian scholar and Bible teacher of absolutely enormous uh, stature, talks about how the, the way that we read Scripture, he said that the, the, the Bible is like a house where you go into, and each book is a, a different room in the house, but the room is locked, and there's a key for it. But he said there's a key outside the door, but all the keys for all the different books, the 66 rooms and all the keys, have all been jumbled up. And essentially, and I'm, I'm hashing it a bit, but the imagery is this, that you walk into this house with all these rooms that are locked and the keys are outside the doors, but they've been moved around. And your job and my job is to find the key that opens the door. And part of what he was trying to say, the imagery that he used, is that we understand Scripture only when we begin to read it in relation to one another, to each other, to different passages as we put them together. And so his whole thing is that to understand properly, the Psalms form perhaps this um, 150 chapters um, of a garden using Athanasius's picture, where the, where all the bit, bits of the other garden are somehow included. But as we begin to read the Psalms and we put together the other passages from the Gospels and the letters and the various prophets and the law, all these things that come together, it, it reinforces and forms something that unlocks different aspects of who God is, who we are, and what we are called to do. It's enormously exciting. And that's what I want to kind of share with you as we go into Lent this year. The key that uh, Oregon opens for us is, is how do we read Scripture together? And I want to start with next week looking at Psalm 78 and then 1 Kings 19 with Elijah and putting the things together. And over the next weeks, look at the wind of God, the fountain of living water, the fire of God, and how... Scripture allows us to enter into and to participate and become part of the drama, the adventure that God has placed before us. Read Psalm 78. It's long. It's 72 verses. Read 1 Kings 19 in preparation for next week. But read it in this way that allows you to see them together and allows them to speak with each other and invites you and me, to hear God saying to us, Chris, Chris, and we need to say, speak, Lord, because your servant is listening. God bless. I'll see you at the Chateau Cafe on Sunday.